And let's turn on our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. On Sunday morning, we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians together. Christian living in a pagan world. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just wave to them, they'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We want everybody to own a Bible and to read a Bible and to know their Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, and the ideas look around the room after we look at ourselves. But not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And the idea is he could go on and on. That that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for every portion of your word. And we thank you that it's intended to do something not optional, but significant and vital in each one of our lives and in our relationship with you. And Lord, we thank you for your word, your word, and the privilege of being able to build our lives on so solid and immovable a foundation, Lord, and a world that is tries to give the illusion of stability, tries to tell us how to build our lives on what to build our lives, what to trust in, what to believe in, where the strength is. And all it does is cause everyone to collapse at the end of it. But your kingdom is completely different than that. And your word does something completely different in our lives. Teach us, Lord, this morning more about your ways, the ways that work Lord, and we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The city of Corinth, like all Greek cities at its time, was enamored with human wisdom. As the Apostle Paul puts it by the Holy Spirit, with the persuasive words of men's wisdom. When the Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey, he was stopped at a city, the city called Athens. He stopped in that city immediately before he came to the city of Corinth. And when he was in Athens, he got a mouthful of the persuasive words of human wisdom. In Acts chapter 17, we're told concerning his visit there, 
for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And the idea is not just some new thing, but some newer thing, the latest idea, the latest intellectual fad, the latest intellectual pursuit. The city of Corinth was also enamored with the excellence of speech, we're told in chapter 2, verse 1. They loved orders. They loved highly skilled and practiced and accomplished public speakers. I remember years ago watching on the PBS station, and there was a man that was in the middle of doing something, speaking, you know, in in a very large auditorium, I don't know where. But I really kind of got my first appreciation for, in some respects, the beauty of oratory ability and uh, not only the message, but the presentation of it. And he was just speaking complete nonsense. It was all man-centered nonsense and, you know... Kind of a foundation is that, or a hope to put our put in this, in ourselves. But boy, could he speak, and could he hold an audience? I mean, he was mesmerizing. There's something powerful about all of that, and they really, really liked gifted and passionate speakers. And because this was the cultural context in which the church at Corinth existed the Christians began to feel great pressure on themselves that they needed to present the gospel in the same way. That in order to reach Corinth with the gospel, it would take intellectually brilliant men and women who also had a tremendous ability to speak with with great eloquence and public speaking skills. And the Apostle Paul informs them here that that wasn't, not only was it not true, the exact opposite was true. That in Corinth, if they had taken all of the great speakers or all of the great intellectuals that might have existed within the church, the result of putting them up and saying, this is the only kind of person that can speak the gospel, the result in Corinth, and we live in Corinth in the United States of America, the result would have been that people's faith would have been in the wisdom and the oratory skills of man rather than in the power of God. And because God wants people's faith to be in God, he adds the demonstration of the Spirit, the witness of the Holy Spirit to the simple gospel message. And he gives the gospel message spoken through ordinary people a supernatural impact and power in people's lives that the greatest intellects of men and the greatest orders can ever produce in a human life so that when a person puts their trust in Jesus on the basis of the message and not on the basis of the messenger, then they are doing so under the conviction and the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we can be confident of that. Only the Holy Spirit can convict a person of sin. 
That is, of their need for God, their need for forgiveness. And then only the Holy Spirit can give life to the gospel message of the fact that forgiveness of sins is found in putting one's faith and trust and the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures and that that is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases God and has the power to change our eternities and to change our lives. And so only the Holy Spirit can do that in a person's life. And so God isn't looking for eloquence. He isn't looking for the persuasive words of man's wisdom. He's just looking for Christians who will simply and sincerely share the gospel with people, and then He will provide the needed fireworks in their heart. He will provide the yea and amen. He will provide the witness in their heart. And because this is true, for the most part, when God calls men and women, He chooses those who don't possess excellence of speech or persuasive words of human wisdom, which brings us to our passage here this morning, where He tells us in verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Now, like all churches, the church at Corinth was made up of simple, humble people. People who did not and do not possess great eloquence, nor are they well-versed in the learning or the philosophy of their age. But I'll tell you, they're the salt of the earth. They'll tell you, let my end be with that group of people than with the other group of people. He says concerning us that not many wise are called according to the flesh. In other words, they're not wise in the human philosophies of the day. They're not highly educated or steeped in human wisdom at university or by whatever means you can do that today in the culture. But I'll tell you, they're wise enough to get saved, to hear God's offer of salvation, and to know there's no offer like that in life, and then to receive that offer into their life. Not many mighty, Paul tells us. That is, there aren't that many in the body of Christ or any local church who are people of power or people of influence. He goes on to say not many noble, not not many that are a part of nobility or blue bloods. They don't make up the upper crust of society, mostly lower and middle class people rather than upper class people. I want you to notice carefully that that passage tells us not many. It doesn't say not any, because there are some people who possess nobility. Uh, They possess tremendous wisdom of the world. They have tremendous power, and they have tremendous influence. And they come to Christ 
from that particular place in life. It isn't that there aren't any, but there aren't many. And they've always been a very, very small minority in the body of Christ. Not for the reason that people think. They are the minority in the body of Christ just as God has chosen it to be. Well, I don't know what this description does for your self-esteem, but since self-esteem is a crash-and-burn path to be on, self-anything is, it's good to crash and burn under the weight of the Word of God and the safety of a sanctuary. But all of it's true. I want you to notice next that all of this that God does is deliberate. You notice there in verse 27, but God has chosen. In other words, this is by His design. This is the way He wants it among His people. And then notice that the Apostle Paul tells us in verses 27 through 29, Paul gives us the reasons God has done it this way. He tells us in verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. The foolish things refers to me. It refers to us. Verse 27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. The weak things are us. God has chosen, verse 28, the base things of the world and the things that are despised, the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And again, the base things, that refers to me and most of you in this room. And it literally means low-born. Those who, the idea is those who were, have sprung from no one in particular. Their parents are nobodies, nothings. Nobody knows their name. Nobody will remember them in human history. And so they're nobodies in the world's eyes, insignificant in the world's eyes, a nobody who has come from a long line of nobodies in the eyes of the world. That's the base things. The things that are despised, that again refers to us. And it refers to people the world looks down on. The world looks at and rejects. Says these people are zeros. These people are nothing. They're of no account. And the world does it with scorn. And they do it with ridicule. And then he says the things which are not. Again referring to us. And the idea is those who in the eyes of the world don't exist. In the eyes of those that are, for the most part, those that are noble, those that are mighty, those that are, have these high places in life and all of this, the, the, the people that make up this particular characteristic and so much of the body of Christ, the rest of the world, this other part of the world, lives their lives as if we don't exist. Again, they're accounted as nothing by the world, insignificant by the world, as useless in the eyes of the world. Those that make up the great anonymous masses of the world, it would refer to slaves in the ancient world, 
who cared about slaves. All you cared about was what they produced at the expense of their life that someone in the upper crust could then enjoy. But no thought of the cost of humanity or human beings, the price that they paid in order for that to be poured into that goblet or even to own that goblet, that group of people that's out of sight and out of mind, out of the sight and minds of so many in the world. God chooses them into his body. We would call them cannon fodder in times of war, just anonymous, nameless in terms of the thoughts of generals or military or in thoughts of the world, just human beings that have been born into the world to just run out in front of these guns and be leveled in order that this other group of people might have what they want to have. Insignificant slave labor in the modern world that just keeps commercial Babylon humming. And it's the lowest class, those easily forgotten by society. These are the ones that make up the average church in the world today, and it's always been true in human history. But Paul tells us that God loves these kind of people. He loves us, and he saves these kind of people, but then he chooses them to be his messengers. He gives them the privilege of then preaching the gospel and advancing the kingdom in whatever position he puts them in, in the body of Christ. And thus the Lord gives their lives a greater meaning and significance than all of the wise and mighty of this world who want nothing to do with Jesus and his work. And the simplest saint enjoys a joy and a peace and a sense of meaning and purpose that the worldly wise and the most powerful of men will never know apart from God. And the fact that the gospel and the kingdom of God have advanced for 2,000 years through such people shames or confounds the wise and the mighty. They don't know what to make of it. On the basis of the average Christian, they don't know how Christianity has survived for 2,000 years, let alone advanced and taken over the world. It confounds them. It shames them. They don't know what to make of it. And because a living God is the only explanation for it, they, but they don't want to believe in God, it confounds them for all of their wisdom they can't figure it out, for all of their power they can't even come close to replicating what the Holy Spirit does through the overlooked of the world by the powers that be and the intellects that are worshipped in the world all around us. And God chooses such people 
so that when he does his great work through them and he does a great work through them, no flesh will glory in his presence. That is, verse 29, that the Lord will be glorified. If he only used the wise and the powerful of the world, then people would just naturally give them the glory. There would be no being confounded by the existence of Christianity against all odds, let alone the prospering of Christianity for 2,000 years, if these were the instruments that God chose. They would just say, well, this is the explanation. Look at the people. Look at the gifts. Look at the power brokers. Look at the positions of influence they have. It's nothing to do with God. It's nothing to do with the message. It has everything to do with the messenger. God will get lost in all of it. But when he uses people like you and me to share the gospel, again with simplicity and and sincerity, and they put their faith in Christ for salvation, then he gets the glory, not only in our eyes, but more importantly, in the eyes of the person that has just accepted the Lord. They know that God did that. And most of the cultured and the mighty of the world, they reject and they look down upon Christianity and to this day the majority of them believe it to be the belief of the ignorant and the uncultured and the uneducated or those that don't possess enough life experience to know better not realizing that all of this is exactly as God wants it to be, and as he has chosen it to be. And then in verses 30 and 31, Paul reminds us of what we have in Jesus. He reminds us why Jesus is the star of the show, the star of Christianity, and not our eloquence or our wisdom. And God tells us in verse 30 that he called us and brought us to a faith in Jesus. And what a Savior Jesus is. And he tells us in verse 30 four great things that Jesus is for each of us as Christians. He is the wisdom of God. He has provided us with an infinitely wise salvation, a salvation that is born out of the infinite and perfect wisdom of God. He is righteous. In other words, we are made, he is righteousness. In other words, we are made righteous in Jesus. Speaking of imputed righteousness, that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for, as, as the Bible teaches a little later in the second epistle of, of the Corinthians, for he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin, to become sin on that cross, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's called an imputed righteousness. So that when God looks at you and he looks at me, he no longer sees our unrighteousness. He no longer sees our past sins. 
He no longer sees our shortcomings in our life today. When he looks at us because of our faith in Christ, this is how powerful faith in Christ is. This is how meaningful it is to God the Father when a person puts their faith in his Son. That now when Jesus, when the Father looks at our lives, he sees only the righteousness of Christ that's been put to our account. We're justified is another word that the New Testament uses. And the word justified, one of the greatest definitions for it is to just kind of let it roll out a bit. It means just as if I'd never sinned. Not only does it refer to an imputed righteousness, But a practical righteousness when he talks about the fact that Jesus is our sanctification and that Jesus doesn't merely save us and then leave us to continue the life that we once lived. Wouldn't that be terrible? I would take it if that's all that, if that's all I could have is the forgiveness of sins, but I would have to continue to live my life in bondage to my selfishness bondage to the frailties and the weakness and the brokenness of my own life and bondage to the sin of the world for the rest of my life until I went to heaven. But that's not what God has done. God has forgiven us of our sins. And then he gives us the ability to live an entirely different life. And he gives us the ability to do that in the only way that we people like you and I ever could do that. The only way a human being could do that, by imparting the person of the Holy Spirit into our lives, one who is so much greater than our sin and our selfishness and our weaknesses, to now give us the ability to live an entirely different kind of life. Jesus has provided that to us, not the mighty or the eloquent of our age for all of their words, not the educated in life. Jesus has provided that to us. And he is redemption, we're told. That is, that he will one day, we will one day be saved from the very presence of sin when we're taken home to heaven. And Jesus has given us the confidence of heaven. And the world cannot Give that to us. Jesus has provided that to us. Again, not the mighty or the eloquent or the intellects of our age for all of their words. Jesus provided these things to us. And since God has provided all of that to us in Christ, verse 31, then God deserves all the glory, all of the honor, and all of the praise. And the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world and the base and the despised things of the world are always happy to give him that glory. The wise, the mighty, the noble, they would compete with him for the glory that he alone is due. God's choice of the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised is really a protection of the gospel. 
It is a protection to Christianity so that it isn't hijacked from God by those that think they're wiser than God or more powerful than God. And the fact that God chooses the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised, none of that works against us. It all works for us because it guarantees that when God uses us to lead people to him, that it will be done by his Holy Spirit. And how often we can look at the apparent lack of education or eloquence so often. We're talking about Corinth now, and Corinth is the world that is around us in the United States of America. It's certainly the Western world. And then Corinth wants to infiltrate the church. Instead of the church conforming Corinth, then pretty soon the church is buying into all of the definitions of Corinth and then we are attempting without even realizing it to become Corinth light in order to reach Corinth rather than being the distinctive thing that we ought to be, the powerful thing, the unique thing that we are in the world is God's saints and as the body of Christ. And how do we know that that influence of Corinth, that thinking of Corinth has infiltrated the church or that it has infiltrated our own thinking and our own individual lives? Sometimes it can happen when we look at the apparent lack of education or eloquence in a pastor or in some Christian worker and we're tempted to think, boy, if we had some superstar in the world's eyes and they became a Christian, then people would really listen to the gospel and then they'd really put their faith in Christ. Some famous athlete, some movie star, some orator, some scientist, some Nobel Peace Prize winner. But look at who these people are that God chooses and puts in these positions. And Corinth invades our heart. And we think the power and the authority is in the very place that it can never be, that God has chosen not to put it. And if God used, used instruments like that instead of the instruments that he uses, then people would be tempted to put their focus on the messenger rather than on the message. But when God calls Job low, to speak for him. None of that happens. God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit remain the stars of Christianity just as it's intended to be. Whatever God call God has upon your life, you do that. Never run from God's calling. on the basis of your 
inadequacy, human speaking, humanly speaking. That you're not wise enough, that you're not mighty enough, that you lack the credentials that the world exalts and now you think you need in order to be successful. It's all Corinth. God calls people like you and me to do his work precisely because we are not qualified humanly speaking so that when he equips us and he uses us, he will get all the glory. Again, not just from our lives, but in the eyes and in the hearts of those he uses us to impact and to reach. I know that there is no other explanation than this list in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for why he chose me and for my life of service. Proud graduate of Napa High School. I went to junior college only to play basketball. And when we started the church here in Modesto, I was three and a half years old in the Lord. I didn't know the theme or the main point of a single book in the Bible. I had read the Bible multiple times by then. I had not taught a formal Bible study more than ten times in those years. I'd led a home fellowship discussions. I remember one time in the early years, I could tell you stories all day, but I'll just prime the pump so you recognize the same stories in your own life. I remember one time there's the old saying, it's Friday, but Sundays are coming, you know, concerning the resurrection. Well, sometimes it's like that for preachers, not related to the resurrection. And I'm not a, I'm not a slag, you know, sluggard. I'm not a slack person. I've always been diligent. And Saturday night I came and there was nothing in the book that I could. It's a big book. Back in those days, I was trying to find rather than just going through a book. Some of you may say, why in the world does he go through a book? Because he tried the other way and it didn't work for him. That's one of the hardest things in the whole world to do, is every week you're going to pull out some new thing from somewhere in this book. You've got 66 books and so much in there. It can just be overwhelming for a person like me. And where do you find the message? And so here was, I'm up at 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning through Saturday. Sunday's coming. I don't have anything to say. It's a weird thing to get in a pulpit on a Sunday morning in front of a lot of people and you don't have a sermon. So I got up and I preached the gospel. It took me just a few minutes and I sat down and felt like the biggest failure in the world. I remember one time I came from, we were driving from Napa back in those days 
to do the Sunday morning services. We still live there. And we were teaching in First Peter. And we got here to Napa, I mean to Modesto. And I got my bi- had my Bible and we would go into Bob's Big Boy over there by Tully and Sylvan and We'd go, I'd go into the restroom and I would change from what I drove over in into a shirt and a tie. And then I would reread my notes before the Bible study and open up my Bible and there were no notes. That's a bad feeling. <laughs> and so I went up there into the pulpit and I just was going to bluff. I said everything I knew from the Bible in 10 minutes. And then it became painfully clear that this man is in trouble up there. And I just said, I forgot my notes. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just bluffing here. And closed in prayer and sat down. Sometimes people will thank me for being faithful to teach the Word of God and sticking to the Word rather than wandering off into other things. And if you've ever done that, you know, I always tell you the same thing. Because I certainly can't take any credit for it. I say, when you don't have a song and a dance, then you stick to the Word of God because you have nothing else to say. That's what he gets when he calls the weak. And he calls the kind of person that he does. He gets that kind of dependence upon him. And as a result, in any way that he chooses to use us, he gets all of the glory for anything that he does. I remember talking a couple of months ago with a Calvary Chapel pastor. And we were talking about the whole area of the Holy Spirit. And... And he said, he made a comment that I thought was very interesting. He said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of pastors, and and it's not just true of pastors, it's Christians in general. But he said, there's a lot of pastors who they want God to prove that the Holy Spirit is with them and on their life in some kind of raise somebody from the dead kind of a way, some dramatic way. He said, I'll tell you how God spoke to me about the importance of the place of the Holy Spirit in my life and drove that point home. He said one time on a Sunday morning, he'd been in the ministry teaching 20 years, whatever, as a pastor. He said one morning he was up in the pulpit, and I think it was the second or third service, and his mind went completely blank. Nothing. Couldn't pull one thing up, let alone the train of thought that he had. To save his life, he could not put a thought in his mind. The whole congregation thought he'd had a stroke in front of him. One of the leaders of the church came up and helped him off the platform, back into his office. And as he's in the office, he's saying, Lord, that... That was just so humiliating. That was so terrible. What in the world happened there? And the Lord spoke to him and said, 
that's what you would be apart from my Holy Spirit. And he said, now, anytime I can open up the Bible and words come out of my mouth, I know it's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think it's just some big old gigantic fireworks show. It's a lot simpler than that. It's a lot closer to home than that. Not just in our ministries, but in our personal relationship with the Lord as well. Now, many of the greatest servants God has used through history, when God called them, I mean, they were hesitant. They offered up all kinds of excuses for why God was making a wrong decision in choosing them. Because, like Corinth, their idea was, God, if you want to make a change in human history, if you want to do something dramatic, if you want to do something that is up to the need of the hour of human history in which I'm living, you need to find someone eloquent. You need to find someone well-educated. You need to find someone with connections and power and this kind of thing. And they had bought into the same thing. And they tried to tell God why he had made a mistake in choosing them. Moses tried to get out of his ministry. Imagine if Moses had gotten out of his ministry. How different the world would be. And he wanted out, and he was paralyzed in moving forward in God's call upon his life because he had a speech impediment of some kind. Gideon, when God calls him to be one of the judges in the history of the nation of Israel, Gideon says, I, I, my father's house is the least house in our tribe, and our tribe is the least tribe of the tribes of the nation of Israel. God, you, you have not just come to the wrong side of the tracks in choosing me. You've come to the lowest of the low on the wrong side of the tracks. You better check your directions and see if you've got the right Gideon. And he was paralyzed by it. And I said, no, I know who I've got. I've got a barley loaf that I'll get glory from. You remember Jeremiah? He tried to opt out of his ministry because of his youth. And his inexperience. God, nobody's going to listen to me. I'm, I'm too young. In a patriarchal society, they only listen to older people. It's the opposite in our culture. But in that culture, for youth to stand up and begin to speak for God and for older people to listen, this required a miracle from God. But the Bible says, and it's a beautiful verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And when he does it, you will give him the glory. But so will every life that's impacted by your life. As we share the gospel, let us always remember that our effectiveness never depends on us, but upon the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. 
We are not called to make the gospel powerful. It's powerful all by itself, and it will explode to life in the heart of the man or the woman or the child who has been prepared to receive it by God, by the bumps and the bruises and the disappointments and the pain of life. It will have that impact. We're called simply to deliver the message. But I think it's so important for us in this Corinthian age that we live in that we must not allow ourselves to be intimidated by the learning and the might of the world around us. God is unimpressed with all of it and the kind of human being that it produces. And this is the message that he wants to have delivered to every man, every woman, and every child in this world, his gospel. And then he will take it from there. And then one day we will stand in heaven and we will marvel in a way that we could never marvel today at the place that we were inviting people to come to forever and ever and ever based upon the shed blood, the sacrificed life of Christ. Salvation is open to everyone. God isn't a respecter of persons. He wants everyone to be saved. So whether you're simple and weak, like most of us in this room, or whether you're highly educated and you hold great power and position in the world all around us, again, he did not say not any. He said not many. God will save even you, just as he saved the rest of us. As Jesus said, God so loved the world, that's everybody, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him for salvation would not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this message of 1 Corinthians. We see how the world, Corinth, is coming into our hearts and into the church and it's bullying us into silence because we're buying the wrong message, believing the wrong things about who you use and why you use who you use. And Lord, I just pray and we pray for one another for just a spirit of boldness and a spirit of liberation to be upon our hearts and to not think about our own inadequacies or to think about what the world tells us is necessary to be successful 
in any realm and we'd throw all of that off, Lord, and just look at your choice of us to do what you call us to do and then to take that place, Lord, and to know that you've done that by design so that we'll give you glory and others will give you glory as we simply obey you and serve you. And so, Lord, we pray that you use this passage in each of our hearts to protect us and to forever push back this influence of the world in terms of who you choose and why, lest we become paralyzed by our own inadequacy and lest all of us talk ourselves out of serving you and taking our place. Thank you for the power and the clarity of your word concerning the things that we face every day in this world. Thank you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. And I want to just ask as we continue to pray here this morning, if there's anyone here that has not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, the gospel is this, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins according to the Scriptures. He paid the price for the forgiveness of your sins. You could never pay that price. And he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And he rose again from the dead on the third day to confirm the truthfulness of his offer of salvation and the forgiveness of sins to you. And if today you sit here and you say, I want to put my faith in Christ, I want to turn from my sin, I want to repent of all of my self-will and I want to begin a relationship with God today and walk in His plan for my life and I want everlasting life. I want heaven after this life. And you'd like to ask God for that this morning. I ask that you just simply stand where it is.